2: Ah, the electron. It's invisible, and yet you see it everywhere. This tiny particle makes your gusto-grabbing life possible. Get electrons to flow, and they can light up the Brooklyn Bridge or heat a burrito in the microwave. But scientists are sparking new ways to generate and use electricity. One day, bacteria might produce it, or we may send a pulse of it through your body to cure disease. This research, plus the 2014 Nobel Prize-winning physics that gave us the blue LED. Your smartphone wouldn't light up without it. We have shocking ideas next on Big Picture Science. Before the Victorian era, electricity referred to only one of two things. There was static electricity, such as you might generate by shuffling across a carpet in the winter, or combing your hair, or brushing
4: your cat. Hold on, kitty. Ow! I'm trying to spiff you up. Ow! But you can't run your home on static electricity. Now, children, once more, as Mother wants to try out her new flat iron, take off your sweaters really fast this time, then rub these balloons on your head. Hold this wire while Father captures the charge with his Leyden jar.
5: Yes, Father? Iron is still barely warm, Charles. Do have them do it again.
4: Right. Children, sweaters back on, grab another balloon. Oh, and give your stocking feet a rub on the carpet while you're at it.
5: So static electricity we knew about. And we actually knew how to make a battery, except back then it was called a pile.
2: Batteries produce a steady current, but not very much of it. For electricity to have practical use, we need to be able to generate it in industrial strength quantities. And that was first accomplished after the Civil War by Thomas Edison and Nikola Tesla.
4: My electric light bulb was one of the greatest inventions of all time. It changed everything. We'll still be using it 10,000 years from now. Maybe, Tom but it will be my alternating current generator that will power it. Yeah, yeah, sure thing, Nick, but it'll be my light bulb that will be remembered.
5: Well, there was a famous feud between those two. At any rate, electricity became a household word and a household helper by 1900. But the creative applications of it may just be getting underway. I'm Molly Bentley.
2: I'm Seth Shostak, and this is Big Picture Science, produced at the SETI Institute, where researchers study the nature and origin of life. On Big Picture Science, we step back to get a wide-angle view on science and technology, where it's been, where it's going. And you'd think electricity isn't going anywhere because most of the uses for electricity around us today, well, they were established by 1920. So you'd figure that what this phenomenon can do for us was settled and done.
4: That's right. You won't improve on us, especially on me.
2: But there are a lot more applications to come. It's shocking ideas. Thank you.
5: Power up your smartphone or computer and search for the term blue LED. You'll find that the term that pops up with it is Nobel Prize. Three scientists
2: won the 2014 Nobel Prize in Physics, and the committee said that they were being honored for the invention of efficient blue light-emitting diodes, or LEDs, which has enabled bright and energy-saving white light sources. Without the blue LED, you wouldn't be able to do that search on your smartphone, or for that matter, use it at all. This single blue hue makes it possible.
5: The color comes from a gallium nitride crystal, and more on that in a moment. The full color display on your smartphone depends on red, green, and blue. They combine to form white. And with the blue LED invented in the 1990s, it's possible to make flat-screen televisions and more efficient light bulbs. But
2: why was the invention so worthy of the world's most prestigious science award? Well, in a nutshell, because it was very hard to do. And doing it has changed everything. Okay, well, that's two nutshells.
5: Everything because LEDs are small and super efficient. LEDs' ratio of lumens, the brightness in some sense, per watt is high. And to give an idea of just what that means, according to the Royal Swedish Academy of Sciences...
2: The best artificial light in 15,000 B.C. was a flickering flame. And you got about 0.1 lumens per watt out of that.
4: This blank clay tablet is so blank... I wish they'd invent writing already. Ah, but I wouldn't be able to see it to read it anyway.
5: Edison's light bulb can produce 16 lumens per watt, a substantial improvement, but conventional light bulbs aren't very efficient because you have to heat up a wire and it produces light, sure, but mainly produces heat. Fluorescent lamps are better, but not as efficient as the LED.
2: A modern LED produces 300 lumens per watt. Yowza! and it can last for 11 years of continuous use. But for decades, engineers failed at creating the blue LED that would allow for white light. The Nobel Prize winners did it by growing and modifying crystals of gallium nitride and coaxing them into providing the short wavelengths of blue light.
5: One of the physicists and winner of the 2014 Nobel was University of California Santa Barbara engineer Shuji Nakamura. Working as his postdoctoral student in his lab in the materials department is Siddha Pimpukar, and he tells us why producing the blue light was desirable.
0: The key point with the blue is really, if you want to make white light, you cannot make white light without blue or violet. And that's always been a missing color in the spectrum. And that's really where the blue LED that Shuji Nakamura, my advisor at UCSB, he pioneered it and actually really invented it and made it possible to have energy efficient white light indoors because of the blue LED, which becomes white if you actually mix it with yellow.
2: So this is not just like inventing a blue Christmas bulb, you know, something that's nice, but inessential. This was essential for certain applications. Now you've mentioned indoor lighting, and uh, you know, I myself find that I'm replacing some incandescent bulbs with LED bulbs. They're not very inexpensive, at least not for the bright ones, but that's all a consequence of being
0: able to make a blue LED? Absolutely. The blue LED is really at the heart of all the white lights that you see today. You can kind of imagine creating the blue light. It's higher energy light, so it has more punch to it. So if you combine that with yellow, for example, you do get white. And the versatility of white light is significantly greater than just having blue, you know, Christmas lights that flash on and off.
2: Well, for those who are listening to this, and and they're they're kind of wondering, all right, I get it. I I can replace my light bulbs with with these LED light-emitting diode bulbs, and they take a lot less energy for the same amount of light. But is there any other way in which the blue LED has improved my gusto-grabbing lifestyle?
0: Well, you know, actually, there's one application that i it's very interesting, namely, you know, the iPhone or Samsung or whatever portable device that you may have. You know, the displays that you see, all of them actually use blue LEDs, or most of them anyways, and it really enabled these type of products because before that, the electronics and the apparatus required to generate the light was actually very bulky and wasn't really portable at all. So with the advent of the blue LED, it actually enabled this explosion of portable devices that everybody uses today.
2: So everybody carries around an, an iPad, an iPhone, any of that stuff, they're using blue LEDs. How, how do you take an electric current and turn it into blue light? You know, Edison's incandescent bulb was pretty darn simple. You just pass an electric current, oh, yeah. you know, through a little thin wire and you get light. But, but how does a blue LED work?
0: I mean, a blue LED is very similar in the sense that, yes, you are still flowing current. But in the incandescent bulb, really what happens is the electron flows through a wire and it gets really, really hot. And just like the sun, you know, you get white light out of it. So the LED, on the other hand, you're not generating a lot of heat at all. You actually want the exact opposite. You do not want to generate any heat. The best way to visualize it, I feel, is if you think of a waterfall. So you have water coming from a higher plateau and dropping into a lower plateau level, and you get this big splash of water, right? And really, you can imagine that this splashing action is the generation of light. So that's really what happens inside this magical gallium nitride crystal, is that the electrons come in, they drop inside the material, they emit light directly, and then they flow out of the material. And that's the whole magic.
2: Okay, so this is a matter of using electrons to generate the light by having them, you know, go from one energy state to another or something from high above the waterfall to down at the bottom of the waterfall. But isn't that the the way that red LEDs and yellow LEDs and green LEDs work too? I mean, what was so hard about blue?
0: Absolutely. I mean, the blue, there's nothing special to the blue in the sense of the LED aspect. I mean, we're doing exactly the same thing. But the big difference with the blue LED is really, you know, the height of the waterfall is different. Now you might say, oh yeah, you know, you just find a bigger mountain, right? Well, actually, as it turns out, finding a higher plateau is not as straightforward as you'd like it to be. Because each material that you use to generate this light is very specific. And there's not a lot of materials actually available that are capable of producing blue light. You know, zinc selenide was one example, or silicon carbide is one example. But those two materials, while they were able to produce blue light, it was very, very dim and very inefficient. Whereas the gallium nitride, when it came along, it had all the right properties that we needed to generate blue light, but also very, very efficiently and very bright.
2: So I take it that that's why this took a long time, because I don't know when the first red LED showed up. I mean, maybe maybe 30 years ago, I, I don't know, something like that. And the blue ones only showed up a few years ago. So I assume that there was more than one person working on this problem.
0: Absolutely. There was actually two uh, Japanese researchers. I mean, all three Japanese researchers at the time um, were working in Japan towards gallium nitride. There were various other groups as well. But really, the challenge with the gallium nitride was how do you actually grow the material? It's not a natural material. It's truly 100% man-made. So finding and in developing the technology and the equipment to actually make it happen was really the key to the success. And that's really, I believe, where Shuji Nakamura shined with his reactor design. He really spent two years just hammering away at the machine, redesigning it, changing flows and this and that, until he finally found a stable machine that could reproducibly produce a very highly efficient blue LED. And with that equipment, then, progress was very rapid due to the high quality of the machine. And as you can see, historically speaking, the progress was just staggering. Within 10 years, we went from nothing to everything.
2: Now, there wasn't a Nobel Prize back in the 1870s when uh, Thomas Edison invented the first practical incandescent light bulb. But, of course, that changed everything. And maybe he would have gotten a Nobel Prize in engineering for having done so Is that part of the reason why the Nobel Prize was given for the blue LED? Because it had such widespread practical applications? Or was there some new physics here? Or was it just the difficulty of the technology?
0: So if you look at the will, the Nobel Prize is really awarded for discoveries, but also inventions that benefit mankind. And really what we're seeing here is less of a fundamental physical discovery but more of an invention, just like the integrated circuit, for example, that's enabling all the computing technology available to us today. With the advent of the blue LED and consequently the white light, we're impacting the whole world, especially, for example, like developing countries where they don't have readily access to electricity. The advent of the blue LED actually makes it possible to use and get white light at night without actually requiring a plug in the wall and electricity. But you can simply use a battery or even solar cells to power these LEDs. And that's really the major breakthrough here is the widespread use of white light, the significant energy reduction requirements for white light, and really making everybody's life better.
2: Well, what about printing LEDs instead of manufacturing them. Could we ever do that sort of, you know, make them like wallpaper uh, you know, red, green, yellow displays and and put them up on the wall because that would be great. I could change my living room view any way I want. I could be in downtown Paris one moment in the rainforest the next or whatever. I mean, Is this going to ever happen?
0: Yeah, actually you know, that's already possible today. Um, On the research side of things you know, there's a lot of applications and a lot of novel, exciting ideas that many individuals have and with the LED you can actually make it possible. So one example that I'll just select out is LEDs, they're very, very tiny, right? So they're the size of the grain of salt or smaller. So you can imagine dissolving these small LEDs in some solution and then just putting them in paint even. And then just painting your wall and then with proper contact schemes you can actually light up your wall. So it's absolutely envisionable in the future that some research will figure out this product and, and change life as we know it indoors because it opens a huge amount of possibilities.
2: Yeah, I think that would be really exciting. And so the size of my TV then will be the size of the biggest <laughs> wall I've got? I mean, that's where it's going? <laughs> well, some people say that this is the century of material science. We're going to stop taking what nature's put in the ground for us, and we're going to make our own materials. You
0: agree with that? Oh, absolutely. I mean, I'm in the field of material science, so I mean, it has to be that way. I mean, <laughs> I wouldn't have it any other way. But I agree with you. I mean, really... What mankind can do today is actually tailor nature to do things that it would never have done by itself in the natural state. So it really opens up endless possibilities. Now it's left up to the human imagination to discover and invent the next major breakthrough that will benefit not only individuals, but mankind as a whole.
2: Siddharth Pimputgar, thank you so very much for a, an illuminating discussion. Well, thank you so much for having me. It's a great pleasure.
5: Siddha Pimpukar is a postdoctoral researcher in the Materials Department of the Solid State Lighting and Energy Electronics Center at the University of California in Santa Barbara, where he works with his advisor, Shuji Nakamura, winner of the 2014 Nobel Prize in Physics. And this next bit is encouraging for all you aspiring engineers and inventors. While two of the physicists who won the prize worked in a Japanese university on developing the blue LED, Dr. Nakamura was working on it on his own while he was with a chemical company, but the endeavor was deemed so hopeless by his employer that he had to pursue it in his spare time in the evening. It ultimately paved the way for energy-efficient lighting and gave him a trip to Stockholm. So if you think you're onto something with your basement project, you may want to stick with it.
2: the way research is going, there may be a clever alternative to how we generate electricity one day using bacteria. And we're hoping to take advantage of that and them next. Plus, later in the show, an astounding idea to use electric pulses to cure disease. It's Shocking Ideas on Big Picture Science.
3: Listen in the morning while you're getting ready, or during lunch while you check NASA's astronomy picture of the day. Check out Wired Science now, wherever you get your podcasts. That's Wired Science, wherever you get your podcasts.
2: We're talking about novel inventions
5: that involve electricity. You may recall that electric lighting, you might not recall, it was a long time ago, when it was first introduced changed our culture. And it's been a long time since we shut down our lives at sunset. But you may not be entirely familiar with
2: how that revolution occurred. It's an old story. It was this guy, Tom Edison, of course, and he was in bitter competition with Nikola Tesla to be the first to turn electricity into a business, to take it out of the lab, put it into people's homes.
5: And Edison believed that the best route was to generate DC. We're not talking about the Washington variety, but direct current. This is the same type as batteries make. And so he built a generating plant in downtown Manhattan to do that. The trouble was... Direct current loses a lot of its oomph in the wires, and Edison's customers had to be within a mile or two of the generator. Otherwise, their light bulbs did not turn on. Well, they turned on,
2: but they were dark. Tesla, he figured alternating current, AC, was the way to go. Now, in alternating current, the electrons first go this way, and then they reverse direction and go that way, and then they go the first way and then the second way, back and forth 60 times a second, Alternating current allows you to use transformers to convert the electricity to very high voltage, which doesn't lose its oomph. And he demonstrated this at Niagara Falls. He generated some power there, sent it all the way to Buffalo, a dozen miles away, without appreciable loss. That's what spurred the electric
5: revolution. And we still make electricity with rotating machinery. Some sort of generator spins. It might be powered by a rodent and... That would give you enough power to light maybe one bulb in Mouseville. Or you might want to scale up a bit and spin it by water power. Think of Niagara Falls or Hoover Dam, or with coal-fired steam engines, or even by steam engines powered by nuclear fission. It's all just
2: a way to get that generator to spin. And the generator, of course, is just a big mass of wires and magnets. That's what produces the kilowatt hours that are sitting behind that socket on the wall here, waiting for you to use them. Now, the LED, as we heard, that's a major advance because it's so efficient at turning electricity into light. But are there other ways to
5: make electricity? There might be.
1: I'm Jeff Gralnick. I'm an associate professor of microbiology at the University of Minnesota.
5: What's a microbiologist doing in our discussion about electricity? Well, to answer that, we have to tell a story, a short story about a long time ago.
2: A long, long time ago, A big rock called Earth was wrapped in an atmosphere of nitrogen and carbon dioxide, mostly. No oxygen. For about
1: the first billion or so years on our planet, where life was around, it was an anaerobic world or
2: a world without oxygen gas like we have it today. And yet life still thrived there. Gazillions of single-celled organisms, microbes, learned diverse ways of making do with what was around. And so we had this anaerobic planet that had lots and lots of microbes on it that had different ways of making their energy. So they might breathe methane or maybe even some iron oxide. Then oxygen appeared on our planet and complex organisms evolved to breathe it, like us. Okay, we breathe
5: oxygen, that fact you know. But why? Well, what we're really after when we breathe oxygen is something called ATP. Adenosine triphosphate. Which we create by moving the electrons that are already in our cells, as they are in every atom, to the oxygen that we breathe. And this sets up some chemistry that results in the production of ATP, the basic energy packet of life. So think about this when you take a bite of hamburger.
1: And what we're doing by the food that we eat, we break it down into carbon dioxide, gas, and also electrons and protons. And those electrons run through a little biochemical pathway that's basically a circuit ending up in oxygen. And along the way, a bunch of protons are pumped across a membrane. And we use that proton gradient to make ATP, which is the energy currency for all things alive as far as we're aware of
2: eating produces electrons, but they need a place to go. They need an electron acceptor, and for many breathing organisms, that acceptor is oxygen.
1: Most of the oxygen that we breathe is used for one simple job, and that is to accept electrons. And oxygen is a great electron acceptor.
5: But for breathing microbes who live where there is no oxygen, well, they need something else to sweep up their electrons.
2: And for a few of them, that something else is iron oxide, or rust, which is kind of remarkable because it's not in a liquid, like blood, the way oxygen might be. It's solid. Now, microbes must breathe a lot more rust to make the same amount of ATP as their oxygen-breathing friends, but when you live in mud, well, you simply don't have another way to make a living. And that's
5: of interest to microbiologists because those anaerobic microbes that don't breathe oxygen from billions of years ago haven't completely disappeared.
1: Many of these organisms survived even today in places where oxygen is limiting, say in sediments or in some water column, oceans or lakes that don't have oxygen all the way down to the bottom. And these microbes can use different electron acceptors in order to make their ATP. And the ones that we like to play with use iron oxide minerals or or rust, basically, as their electron acceptor.
2: And he and his team think deeply before playing with those rust-inhaling microbes about a half mile below their feet in the Sudan iron mine of northern Minnesota. The unique metabolism of these organisms might even be harnessed to make electricity one day, says Jeff Grownick.
1: We've been exploring a a mine up in northern Minnesota called the Sudan Iron Mine, and this is a very historic mine in Minnesota. It's the first iron mine in the state, and it became a state park back in the 60s. Um, In the last days of the mine, so it's about a half a mile underground, as they were drilling boreholes down to see where they would build the next level of the mine, they intersected water that's below that mine, and that water's been percolating up. And it's a really interesting kind of briny water that doesn't have oxygen in it, but has lots and lots of these bacteria that, that can do metal transformations. And there's lots and lots of iron in this water because it's a, it's a really old iron formation that, that it's percolating through.
2: Can I ask you, what do they look like? Can you see anything without, you know, breaking out the microscope? I mean, do you see a (laughs) little sort of spongy-looking, icky stuff or or what? Well, in some
1: of the cases, what it looks like is kind of imagine a really fluffy orange and sometimes very brilliant shades of red. And these are minerals that are being made by some of these microbes that are precipitating out in solution or just basically making rust. I got to wonder, are these guys a threat to the Golden Gate Bridge? I mean, there's a lot of iron right there. Well, that's actually, people have thought about this a little bit, that microbes that mediate iron oxidation might accelerate processes like corrosion. We don't have great evidence for that yet, but microbes in general can influence the the rate at which things corrode. But we also might be able to smartly use them in, in ways to
2: maybe even prevent corrosion. Well, that sounds like an interesting application. I think that many people will be thinking, hey, these guys have a way to uh, you know, shoot electrons out of their bodies or bring electrons in. That sounds like moving electrons. That sounds like electricity to me. Maybe we could put these guys to use, providing energy for our gusto-grabbing lifestyle. Could we do that? Yeah, and people are doing this. You can go to a place where
1: there's lots and lots of carbon that nobody cares about, like a wastewater treatment plant, and put these big devices in there that are called microbial fuel cells. And... What's happening is you enrich for for microbes that can eat food, uh, again, this carbon source that nobody cares about, it's just wastewater, and transfer some of the electrons trapped in that carbon into electricity. Also, there's a a cool application where for generating power in very remote places. Imagine uh, you'd like a sensor at the bottom of the ocean, and you don't want to have to go put batteries in it all the time. So there are interesting applications there, too, where it might be really difficult to get electricity to a remote place such as that. You might be able to use the microbes that natively live there to make some power for you.
2: Now, do you do this by actually using the moving electrons, as it were, or do you just feed these guys some compound like rust and have them do their electronic thing, but then just harvest the bacteria as some sort of oily fuel for a, for an engine somewhere. It's the
1: bacteria driving driving the show. And basically what happens is in these devices, you've set them up so that they can be used by the bacteria as uh, in the case of these bacteria that breathe iron as an electron acceptor. And so you poise this electrode such that it can take electrons and the bacteria are really happy because in the environment as they as they breathe rust it basically melts away it goes from this insoluble state into a soluble state and it goes away. But these microbial fuel cells, if we use kind of a, a graphite electrode, it can be there for long, long periods of time and doesn't go away. So you can build a very complex
2: community of microbes that are that are doing this. So they're actually making a current, they're making power for you, electrical power. You know, a microbe is pretty small by definition. It doesn't sound to me like they're going to be making a whole lot of power. I mean, is this really interesting? I mean, how, what, what are you talking about? How many of these things would it take to, I don't know, run? Los Angeles uh, yeah we don't have enough
1: <laughs> enough out there to run <laughs> Los Angeles for sure so that this is where the application in again in places where there's a lot of carbon that nobody cares about like a wastewater treatment plant or in a very remote environment if you can generate a little bit of power say to charge a cell phone or, again, to charge a small sensor, that low power application seems to be um, really possible with this technology. The other thing that people are thinking a lot about now, including stuff that we're doing in my lab, is thinking about engineering these bacteria to be sensors. So these bacteria can naturally interface with an inorganic substrate, this electrode. And if the bacteria, say, senses something, maybe the output is current. And so we're not looking to make electricity, but rather we're using that the ability of these cells to make electricity as a
2: way to sense things. And we can get, we think, very sensitive sensors in this way. Maybe you could give me an example of an application as a sensor, bacterial sensors.
1: Yeah, so in in the organism that my lab studies, we, we understand the pathways that electrons flow from inside the cell to the outside. So we can remove part of that pathway and put it under control of a very specific regulatory pathway. And if this regulatory pathway, say, is involved in sensing arsenic, when the cell's Perceive arsenic. That will be the condition that will allow the cells to make this current, and so we have kind of a we have an electrochemical sensor of arsenic, a bioelectrochemical sensor of arsenic, for
2: instance. Okay, so that might be useful. I can imagine in certain I don't know labs that are testing the drinking water or something like that. Would I have some application for this in my home?
1: Maybe. So for sensing, we've not thought about it so much in that direction. But let's talk about the bacteria that run the opposite direction. And there may be a long-term application in your home for these microbes. So these bacteria that, that make rust as a consequence of their metabolism also have to have a pathway that connects them to the outside world. And we don't really know what that pathway looks like yet. But these bacteria, if they can sit on an electrode and actually eat electricity, Imagine that we engineer a cell that can take that electricity and make energy just like we do in our cells, but then we put that energy to use in making, say, a biofuel. So imagine a a box with these little microbes attached to an electrode and that box in your garage plugged into the wall. Um, making biofuels. And every, every couple of days you pour some into your car and we're just using these microbes as catalysts, taking that electrical
2: energy, fixing CO2 and building more useful compounds from it. So what you're saying is we might be able to generate... An equivalent to the oil that we burn uh, by just having these these microbes sitting there and feeding them with electricity from the solar cells during the day and then taking it out as fuel at night to run a generator.
1: Yeah, we like I like to call these living fuels rather than fossil fuels because it's an actual process that's happening. Now, this is maybe far
2: away, but based on how these organisms work, we think it could be achievable. Jeff, does this suggest anything about uh, the presence of life on other worlds? Because You know, Earth didn't have a whole lot of oxygen in its atmosphere for the first couple of billion years, and there are probably many planets out there that don't have an oxygen atmosphere either, but maybe they still have life that's kind of analogous to the stuff you're studying. Oh, absolutely. I think
1: even though we can't see microbes, they really dominate our planet. And in order for life to get big and complex, you need a great electron acceptor like oxygen. But everywhere we look on our planet, we find microbes. and. Um, We find them because they have this metabolic versatility. They're able to live in lots and lots of different ways. We basically need to eat steaks and and vegetables, right, and breathe oxygen, and that's all we can do. But microbes have a lot of different ways that they can live. And so it's very likely that in in other environments, if you've got the right chemical conditions on a place like in the seas of Europa or even in the subsurface of Mars, where there's a good chance there's still water, uh, you might have microbes being very happy down there. Jeff Graldnick, thanks
2: so very much for speaking with us. Thank you very much. I had a great time.
5: Jeff Graldnick is associate professor of microbiology at the University of Minnesota. So
2: while electricity generating bacteria might be limited, it is an example of a novel source and an application, and that's a far cry from the electricity pioneers of the 19th century.
4: Well, it is an ingenious plan. Imagine tiny organisms producing electricity. Yes, I'll admit, clever. Still limited use. Not like alternating current, which can power Los Angeles. Alternating current is so complicated. Transformers, power adapters, such a mess. My name remains synonymous with electricity. Tesla, electricity, same thing. Have you traveled to New York, Nick? I'm not too modest to remind you that it's Con Edison, not Con Tesla. So what? Is anyone parking an Edison in their garage? No, they've got the shiny new Tesla.
5: Well, there's no doubt that turning electricity from a curiosity into an essential was important, but the story isn't over. Electricity might also have a big effect on our health. Could pulses of it actually cure what ail you?
2: That's a shocking idea, and it's next on Big Picture Science. We just heard that some bacteria actually thrive on electricity, so that's a far cry from 130 years ago, when people were afraid to have electricity in their home because... After all, it was invisible, it was mysterious, and it was surely dangerous. It took a while for most people to see the benefits of electricity.
5: And inevitably, some hucksters thought that its mysterious nature was just the ticket for making a fast buck. In the Gilded Age, there were all sorts of electric devices being peddled as cures for a variety of ailments or just to help you lose weight, such as the giant Heidelberg electric belt that supposedly would let you shed 30 pounds without diet or exercise. In a word...
2: But today, modern neuroscience is re-examining the health benefits of electricity. Electricity flows in your body along nerves, after all, including the focus of recent research, the
3: vagus nerve. The vagus nerve is a paired structure, so there's one on each side of the body. And you can find it closest to the skin in your neck, actually, to the side of your Adam's apple, where you feel your pulse.
5: Your vagus nerve and your sympathetic nervous system work together to keep your internal organs functioning. Kevin Tracy is a neurosurgeon who specializes in inflammation at the Feinstein Institute for Medical Research in New York. And he says that the communication between the two nervous systems affects our internal functions in times of stress.
2: So our nervous system obviously plays a role in keeping us well. And yet, for a long time, it was thought that communication between our nerves and our immune system was impossible. The immune system is made up of floating cells, the nervous system of, well, nerves, and the two never met. Dr. Tracy's research on the vagus nerve in rats suggests otherwise.
5: He eventually hypothesized that stimulating the vagus nerve could counter a host of inflammatory diseases, such as rheumatoid arthritis and Crohn's disease. Dr. Tracy's research has set in motion the field of bioelectronics, whose scope might even include the treatment of cancer. His ultimate hope is that an implanted device that communicates directly with the nervous system will replace much of the drug industry one day.
2: Kevin, you're talking about therapy with electricity, and electricity, as I think many of us know, is simply the flow of electric charge, just uh, electrons. And generally speaking, we see that happening in copper wires, How does electricity flow in our
3: body? I don't think I have any wires in my body. Electricity in your body flows along nerves. Nerves connect virtually every cell of your body to the nervous system. The big difference, of course, between nerves and copper wires is the speed at which the transmission occurs. Well, tell me something about that speed, because in
2: copper wires, I think, uh, you know, electric uh, impulses, electric signals, if you will, move very close to the speed of light in a vacuum, you know, 186,000 miles a second, whatever the number is.
3: That's right. It's about 300 million meters per second, uh, as opposed to the speed that nerves conduct electrical information, which is closer to the order of 30 meters per second.
2: That's incredibly slow. I'm surprised that I can, uh, you know, avoid tripping all the time.
3: It is slow in cosmic terms. It is slow in terms of the speed of light, but it's very fast in terms of the speed of biology.
2: Now, the idea that you're exploiting here is that by stimulating the vagus nerve with electrical impulses can, in some cases, cure what ails us. And the
3: function of this vagus nerve is to do what? The vagus nerve has many functions, but its overarching function is to connect the ancient brain, the brainstem, to the organs of the body that we take for granted without thinking about them. All right. So, I mean,
2: many of the organs, all of the organs, one or two of the organs? All of the organs. My goodness. Okay. So, I should think of this thing as a a nerve that on the top end, it's connected to the, if you will, primitive part of my brain, which I can't personally distinguished from the rest of it, and then it kind of branches out
3: and reaches all the organs in my body. Correct, with a few small exceptions. It basically connects to your heart, your lungs, your kidneys, your GI system, and the signals that it carries provide the key information to your brain to monitor the function of all these organs. But isn't it true that the
2: vagus nerve was not thought to connect to our immune system? I mean, our immune system is comprised of a bunch of cells floating around, these little white blood cells, whatever. And so it doesn't seem like there's any way that the vagus nerve could put us in touch with that part of our body.
3: The immune system was viewed historically as separate from the control of the nervous system. So white blood cells, in fact, as you mentioned, float in the bloodstream and they move through the tissues. But what my colleagues and I discovered is that nervous signals originating in the vagus nerve can control the activity of those white blood cells when they pass through the spleen and other organs, and this provides a key means of information transfer from the brain to control the basic function of the immune system.
2: All right. Well, Kevin, all of this, I mean, you know, this is interesting physiology. Uh, sort of how to, how does the nervous system, you know, connect our organs and so forth and so on. And I would have thought, well, that's, you know, something that a medical student would want to study, but probably doesn't affect medicine very much, except that you're finding out that that may not be true. I mean, you did some experiments on rats in which you stimulated their vagus nerve with a small electrical jolt. Uh, maybe you could uh, tell me something about that experiment, what what you did and what was the
3: result? So the experiment was looking at how the immune system produces a molecule that can cause disease. We tend to think of having a strong immune system and you want an immune system that will defend you from infection or defend you from injury. But in fact, you don't want your immune system to be too strong. If your immune response is too strong, you are likely to experience side effects of an overactive immune system. One side effect of an overactive immune system is the overproduction of a molecule called TNF. And TNF by itself can cause severe damage to tissues. It can cause shock, but it can also cause rheumatoid arthritis, and it can cause inflammatory bowel disease. So the immune system is the source of TNF. And the key discovery to this vagus nerve immune system connection was that when we electrically stimulated the vagus nerve, it turned off the production of this toxic molecule by the immune system. The vagus nerve provides a breaking mechanism on the dangerous molecule TNF. All right, so you had some rats. You
2: stimulated their vagus nerve with this electrical jolt, and that uh, kept them from having this massive response to some toxin that you
3: injected into them? Exactly right. So, the key experiment that allowed this discovery you referred to is to take animals, mice or rats, activate their immune systems by giving them bacteria or bacterial toxins, like endotoxin, and measure the TNF response. And the the normal response to endotoxin is to make a lot of TNF. When we directly stimulated the vagus nerve with an electrode to mimic what can be done in the clinic, we found that the electrical signals to the vagus nerve turned off the release of TNF by the immune system. Okay, it didn't attack the, I don't know, the biological
2: response, though, did it? I mean, if if I inject some bacteria into, into a mouse or a rat, I would think maybe they're going to get an infection, and stimulating the vagus nerve might keep them from swelling up with inflammation, but it doesn't do anything for the infection, does it?
3: The stimulation of the vagus nerve blocks the side effects, if you will, of the immune activation. It doesn't appear to block the protective activity of the immune response against the infection.
2: So your immune system then takes on the infection, and this controls the immune system, so it doesn't overreact and give you the inflammation, which could be worse than the infection. That's the
3: idea. Exactly right.
2: But, I mean, you you said you gave this thing a little electrical jolt. This sounds like a galvanic experiment, you know, with frog's legs or something like that. I mean, it's kind of unfocused. Uh, do you just, you know, shock the entire vagus
3: nerve? I mean, how, how do you know you're, you're shocking the right part of it? So the vagus nerve is like a transatlantic telephone wire. It has some 80,000 different individual fibers inside of this vagus nerve. Each of those fibers can be grouped into families that are capable of being stimulated by different amounts of current, and it turns out that the fibers that control the TNF response represent probably only 10% or less of the total fibers in the vagus nerve, and they are activated by extremely low charge densities when applied to the nerve. So in fact, a very low current, a very small amount of current applied to the vagus nerve in a very specific way activates what we think are only the fibers that control the TNF response, not the fibers to the heart, not the fibers to the gut or the spleen. So there is definitely strategies to make this very specific and targeted, even when you're stimulating the entire nerve.
2: But to do that, don't you need to identify which part of the vagus nerve you're going to stimulate? I mean, this whole thing isn't very big, right? I mean, this isn't, you say, a transatlantic uh, telephone cable, but, you know, those things might be an inch or two in diameter. I don't know. But the vagus nerve is pretty small. How, how do you know which part to stimulate? I mean, do you need one of those charts like they always show to the bottom of the foot? You know, this part's connected to the pancreas and that part's connected to the, I don't know, the lungs and
3: that sort of thing. I mean, do you have such a chart for the vagus nerve? So that's an extremely important point And we and others are working on exactly that chart the answer to your question is that chart does not exist today and there is a need for such a chart and there is an interest in developing those maps that said one doesn't need to have that map in hand today to accomplish what i said before which is by applying a low current um, you can actually stimulate the entire vagus nerve and only the nerves that are responsive to low current will actually fire. The others will remain quiet.
2: Well, tell me, now we've been talking a little bit about inflammation and rheumatoid arthritis was mentioned there. Uh, This is all part of a field called bioelectronics, and uh, I, I believe you have hopes that this is going to, you know, replace certain parts of the drug industry for treating disease. Maybe you can give me some idea of what sorts of
3: diseases could this kind of technology be used for. This type of technology, which I define as the field where molecular medicine, sort of classic molecular biology, overlaps with neurophysiology, as we've been talking about, overlaps with biomedical engineering. Where those three come together is bioelectronic medicine. And the diseases that are on the relatively short list, or either being actively explored or soon to be explored, as treatment targets of bioelectronic medicine include diabetes, cancer, rheumatoid arthritis, and other inflammatory diseases such as irritable bowel syndrome and irritable bladder syndrome.
2: Now, does it actually cure the disease? I mean, if you have some sort of cancer and you undergo this kind of therapy, do you walk away from that
3: uh, without cancer? I mean, does it work that well? I don't know. Cancer has been studied in animals, and the role of neural signals in treating cancer is being explored in prostate cancer and in other tumors, primarily by Paul Fournette and his colleagues also here in New York. Whether it will cure cancer or not, I think it's too early to to tell. The experiments in some inflammatory diseases raise the possibility that some patients with inflammation caused by either rheumatoid arthritis or inflammatory bowel disease may be fully treated by the implant of a nerve stimulator, and they may not require other medications to be symptom-free. Some would call that a cure. I'm not sure that's the right word.
2: Well, it sounds like you've managed it. I mean, because you're, you're stimulating it all the time. You put uh, some sort of device in the body, right, to continue stimulating it. It isn't that you
3: go in, they put some paddles up against the affected organ, and bam, you're all you're all done. Correct. It would not be a put the paddles on and treat once and be done with a cure. That is correct. On the other hand, the evidence in animals suggests that the set point, which is abnormal during inflammation, there's a loss of balance. So the, the nervous signals that normally provide balance to the immune system during health are disrupted. And the question that's being addressed in animal studies now is whether we can retrain the nervous system and immune system to return to balance by the method in which the signals are delivered.
2: So this works not at the molecular level directly. I mean, I, I think of medicine as being a chemistry problem, really, uh, and, and maybe it is. But what you're doing is you're using the body's own immune system. You're, you're recalibrating that to take on the problem.
3: Yes, uh, with a caveat. So nerves make drugs. Nerves transmit electrical information and when the electrical information arrives at the end of the nerve that information is converted to a chemical signal a molecular signal and we have mapped in exquisite detail how this signal in the vagus nerve goes from an electrical signal to a chemical signal to a receptor to a cell called the t-cell that makes another chemical acetylcholine which binds to another receptor on the cell that makes the TNF, which turns off the production. That type of molecular understanding is critical to developing these electrical devices. If you don't understand these mechanisms, then you're guessing at what type of electrical device to make. So it really is an intersection of electrical information with chemical information.
2: Kevin, you know, uh, in the late 19th century, when Edison and Tesla brought electricity into people's homes, there was a lot of discussion and and quite a few gadgets, actually, that promoted electricity as something that was good for your health. And and most of what they were selling, I think, was snake oil, uh, electric snake oil. Isn't there some irony here that maybe these folks were actually on to something, although they didn't really know?
3: It really depends on what nerve was being stimulated and how it was being stimulated. Uh, if one, as you were asking earlier in the program, if, if one takes an electrode and applies it with some amount of current to one nerve, you're going to get a, elicit a very different biological response than if you apply a different current to a different nerve. And that's, that's technology that we have available to us today that Tesla and Edison did not have available to them.
2: Well, finally then, Kevin, where's this going? I mean, are we going to see people in the future walking around with, you know, small little uh, electrical devices uh, implanted
3: in their bodies to control whatever it is that's ailing them? Yes. There will be devices approved for clinical use, in my opinion, to treat a variety of diseases. These devices will replace drugs in some patients, and in other patients these devices will provide a therapeutic option to treat diseases for which today we have no drugs that work. These devices will not be a panacea. They will not be a cure-all, but in my view, they will make a significant mark on the pharmaceutical industry as we know it today, and the benefit will accrue to millions of patients who need new therapies today. Kevin Tracy, thank you so very much for speaking with us today. You're welcome. Thank you for having me on the program.
5: Kevin Tracy is a neurosurgeon and president of the Feinstein Institute for Medical Research in New York. If you were thinking that research into electricity was a 20th century or even a 19th century endeavor, I guess you have to think again.
2: Yeah, that's truly remarkable that we could use something as simple as electric currents to cure some of these very difficult diseases. But, you know, even that LED technology, you can say that's engineering, but it's incredibly far-reaching because it's going to bring in a second revolution in artificial light. And bacteria that use the flow of electricity to breathe rust, well, those might be prototypes for the kind of life we have on Mars because Mars doesn't have much oxygen, but it certainly has rust.
5: Thanks to a production team that is shockingly efficient, Gary Niederhoff and Barbara Vance.
2: Also thanks to financial support from Reno Scholsky david and Sammy David and the NASA Astrobiology Institute. Big Picture Science is produced at the SETI Institute, whose research staff investigates the nature and origin of life. And a big thanks also to our listeners.
5: Your ears have been attuned to shocking ideas, and if you found this show electrifying and would like to hear more Big Picture Science, you might want to peruse our archive online at our website, bigpicturescience.org. And
2: if you're a podcast listener, but you prefer to substitute it for over-the-air radio because you just figure electrons want to breathe free, check out the listing on our website of radio stations that carry the program. And if your local station is not on that list, consider letting them know you like the show. Oh, and have a comment, a criticism, a suggestion, we'll send it in. We'll read it all and get back to you. Just email it to bigpicturescience at SETI.org.
4: You know, Nick, I'll admit, your alternating current was innovative. And the invention of the light bulb, Tom, was a light bulb moment. (laughs) (laughs) And if it weren't for us, what happens in Vegas is then staying in the Vegas nervous system. (laughs) Ah, close enough.